From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, trabeculectomy versus drainage implant, one-year data from the TVT study, part two. We looked at variability of pressure and found that the trabeculectomy group had greater variability of pressure postoperatively. So they had more highs and lows of intraocular pressure. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Getty declares research funding from unrestricted grants from AMO and Pfizer, the NEI, and Research to Prevent Blindness. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Today's podcast is part two of a two-part interview with Steve Getty about results from the TVT study a study comparing trabeculectomy to drainage implant surgery. We ended last week's segment with a question about reasons for failure of each of the procedures. We'll pick up today with the same question. What were the typical reasons for failure? Well, the majority of patients, actually in both groups, failed because of inadequate pressure control. There were no patients that failed because of loss of light perception, and there were a few patients in the trabeculectomy group that failed because of hypotenuse, so that pressure less than five on two consecutive visits after three months. Now, can you clarify what inadequate intraocular pressure control means? What does this mean in, in, in the context of this study? So there are really um, two failure cr- criteria that really fall into that category of inadequate pressure control. Those are the patients that had pressures above 21 on two consecutive visits after uh, three months. And I I guess I should also mention that the pressure had to be reduced by 20% from its preoperative level. So if they had kind of too high a pressure, the pressure was above those those, um, uh, kind of failure level, they, we, we call that inadequate pressure control. Or if they required a reoperation for glaucoma, that reoperation for glaucoma was clearly done because of inadequate pressure control. And that was the biggest category or reasons for failure in this, this study during the first year of follow-up. Did any clinical or demographic variables correlate with treatment failure? We looked at a number of baseline factors to see if they were predictive of failure. So again, were there any baseline characteristics that were were associated with a higher failure rate? And the only um, baseline factor that predicted failure was actually treatment allocation. So as we just talked about, there was a trend for patients with secondary glaucoma to have a tendency to have a higher failure rate than patients with 
primary glaucomas. And we didn't talk really about the exclusion criteria of the study. We did exclude a number of secondary glaucomas like neovascular glaucoma, uveitic glaucoma. But if you looked at primary glaucomas, namely primary open angle glaucoma and primary angle closure glaucoma, and compared it to all the other secondary glaucomas that were allowed in this study, like pseudoexfoliation, pigmentary glaucoma, angle recession glaucoma, those secondary glaucomas had a tendency to have a higher failure rate compared with the primary glaucomas. Was either treatment modality associated with a higher incidence of needing reoperation? There was a trend towards a higher a reoperation rate in the uh, trabeculectomy group uh, compared with the tube group. There were five patients in the trabeculectomy group that required a reoperation for glaucoma. All those patients actually received a Bearvelt implant as their reoperation. And there was only one patient in the tube group that required reoperation, and that was a cyclodestructive procedure, a cyclophotocoagulation. That difference approached the physical significance but didn't quite make it. The surgeons obviously couldn't be masked to the procedures that they had performed. Do you think that this played any role, um, that it introduced any sort of bias in the recommendation for reoperation? It's a, it's a great question, and you're exactly correct that the surgeon was not masked to the treatment allocation. He could look and see either the person obviously had a filtering bleb or a tube in their eye. And there is... I would say um, among glaucoma surgeons, a, p- a potential bias towards having a higher threshold to reoperate on a person that has had a tube shunt compared to somebody that's had a trabeculectomy. If somebody's failed a trabeculectomy, generally the next step would be to do either a repeat trabeculectomy or a tube shunt. In fact, that's you know, one, of the, one of the questions that this study is actually addressing. However, if somebody has failed a tube shunt operation, generally reoperating on that patient is a bit more complex. It either involves placement of a second drainage implant or a cyclodestructive procedure. So this could potentially introduce some bias against reoperation, in particular in the patients in the tube group. Well, we explored for that. We actually looked at the pressure level of the patients right prior to their reoperation in the one patient in the, in the tube group and the five patients in the trabeculectomy group that had reoperations, and the intraocular pressures were very similar between the two, two groups. Um, we also looked at the intraocular pressure among those patients that failed because of inadequate pressure control but didn't have a reoperation for glaucoma. And likewise, there was a similar uh, uh, pressure level in those two groups. And I think these observations would suggest that there really was not a bias present towards reoperation in the two groups. Were there any differences in the visual acuity between the two groups during the follow-up period? You know, both groups had similar visual acuity at baseline, and both groups had a similar visual acuity at a year. But in both groups, there was a significant reduction in visual acuity during the course of the first year of follow-up in the study. For those patients in whom visual acuity did degrade, what were the typical etiologies? Well, we asked surgeons when we designed the study, 
uh, and we weren't really interested in visual loss in the very early post-operative period because it's so common, um, you know, at a day, a week, a month, even a month out, that patients would have reduced vision after really any ocular surgery, but certainly glaucoma surgery. But after three months, we were more interested in, in, in those patients that had lost vision, in particular if a patient had lost um, two or more lines of smell and visual acuity compared with baseline, we asked the investigator what was the reason for that vision loss. And actually the most common cause of vision loss in both groups was actually cataract, um, which is interesting to me since only about 20% of the patients were actually phakic in this study. But um, yeah, so cataract progression was a, was a common cause of a decreased vision in, in both groups. There were a variety of other causes like, you know, hypotonic maculopathy, um, uh, corneal edema, um, and in some cases uh, the the investigator couldn't identify an underlying cause for the for the decreased vision. Are your findings of similar intraocular pressure reduction in the TRAB and the two groups in accord with the sort of common clinical thinking before the study was done? Um do you follow what I'm saying, Steve? Was the common wisdom, wisdom in, in quotes there, prior to this study that one would get a similar pressure reduction from a tube uh, as compared to a TRAB? I think that was a surprise, actually. Um, and with respect to the intraocular pressure uh, data, Josh, you're exactly correct. At six months, and a year, there was no difference between the trabeculectomy and tube group. Actually, interestingly, in the first three months, and I guess not surprising, the trabeculectomy group had greater pressure reduction than the tube group. And again, that's not surprising because the trabeculectomy provides, you know, kind of active filtration and really immediate pressure reduction, whereas tube shunts, especially non-valve tube shunts like the bare belt implant, you have to temporarily restrict flow at the time of implantation. That's to allow a capsule to develop around the plate of the implant. And so um, it really takes several weeks before the implant opens and begins functioning. So it's, again, not surprising that early postoperatively um, superior pressure reduction is provided by trabeculectomy. But at six months and a year, there was no difference. I think that we, the impression of many glaucoma surgeons myself included, was that I always thought that you could get a lower pressure in with a trabeculectomy with minimycin C. And my thinking, and I guess the conventional thinking was, is that you couldn't really get low, low pressures with tube shunt surgery. Well, actually, that statement is not supported by the TVT study. In fact, the average pressure at a year in the tube group was about 12.5 millimeters mercury, the average pressure. And, I mean, that's pretty impressive. It did require more medical therapy, again, in the, in the tube group, and I think that's also the, been the impression of most glaucoma specialists is that you do need some additional supplemental medical therapy to get a desired level of pressure in, after a tube shunt surgery. But I was surprised that you could get such great, you know, pressure reduction, again, an average pressure of 12.5 in the tube group 
which was essentially identical to what was seen in the trabeculectomy group after a year. Not to get too technical, but did you look at the tube fenestration group separately? Perhaps you can discuss what tube fenestration is a little bit more. Right. Uh, Tube fenestration is a common technique that is used to provide early pressure reduction after uh, drainage implant surgery when using non-valved implants like the bare valve. At the time of implantation of these devices, the surgeon has to temporarily restrict flow through the implant. The way I usually accomplish that is by just tying the tube off in a watertight fashion with a 7-0 vicral suture. That vicral suture will just dissolve on its own uh, generally about four to six weeks after surgery, and that's enough time for a capsule to form around the plate of the implant. It's that capsule that offers a resistance to flow through the device. So when implanting a non-valved implant, if you left the tube open, didn't restrict flow through it, namely, there's no capsule present to offer resistance to flow, so you could expect to have a pressure of zero and a flat chamber in a patient if you don't use these measures to temporarily restrict flow. Unfortunately, that means that the implant is not functional for several weeks postoperatively. A technique that has been developed to provide some filtration of aqueous humor through the device is to make some little slits in the tube in front of where that vicral suture is so, so that aqueous can travel through the tube, out these little slits and into the subconjunctival space and that has been shown to be provide fairly reliable pressure reduction in, in the early postoperative period. It turned out that, that 75% or so of patients in the tube group had this procedure performed at the time of the surgical placement of the, of the bare vault implant. To answer your question, Josh, we didn't tease out those you know, three quarters of, of patients to see you know, how their early pressure control compared with the 25% in the two group that didn't have this procedure. I think there's some bias. Uh, generally, surgeons will do this in patients that have higher degree, degrees of preoperative pressure, and they might be less inclined to do, do that in, in patients that have, let's say, uh, less significantly elevated pressure. So you I suspect that you're going to, you would be looking at two pretty separate groups of, of patients um, that did and did not have that, that fenestration of the two performed. Steve, you make the distinction in this study between complete and qualified success. Can I have you flesh that out a little bit for me? I think it's quite common in um, glaucoma surgical trials to take those patients that are successes and to subdivide them into two groups, those that are complete successes. In other words, they meet the, they have, they have not failed, so by definition there's a success, but they are not on any supplemental medical therapy. Qualified successes are those patients that are not failures, so they, they succeeded, yet they were on some supplemental medical therapy um, uh, in order to get the desired pressure control. Apart from the pressure reduction that you obtained postoperatively, did one group have a better predictability of postoperative pressure, meaning less variability of the outcomes after surgery? We looked at variability of pressure and found that the trabeculectomy group had greater variability of pressure postoperatively. So they had more highs and lows 
of intraocular pressure. And uh, we specifically looked at that because one has to ask themselves, boy, the trabeculectomy group here had a uh, higher failure rate, yet they were on fewer medications on average than the tube group. And how does that make sense? How can that, how can we make that logically work for us? And it, it does indeed make sense. And it's actually consistent with our clinical impression. If you step, step back and actually look at that, I think most of us that do lots of both surgical procedures recognize that, that, patients that undergo tube shunt surgery on average tend to be on a little bit of medication to get their pressure at a desired level. Whereas trabeculectomy surgery, when it works well, boy, it works great. But if it fails, it tends to fail tremendously and you're piling back on medical therapy and often still not able to control the pressure. So given that fact, first of all, the few patients that failed in the trabeculectomy group even though they were failures, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the few patients that failed because of hypotony, even though they were failures, you can realize how they actually decrease the average number of medications that, that, that the failure group might be in. And moreover, the, the, patient, the, the subgroup that failed because of inadequate pressure control, sure, they were on more medications than the overall group, but they were a relatively small subset of the overall population. So if you recognize that, those two facts, you can, you can make it jive that even though there was a higher failure rate in the trabeculectomy group, they were still on overall less medications compared with the tube group, even though the tube group had a, had a lower failure rate or a higher success rate. We mentioned the potential for a bias with regard to surgeons choosing whether or not to do reoperation based upon whether the initial surgery was tube surgery or trab surgery. But I will pose to you that there is a kind of a, a need for this bias. This bias is real clinical resonance in that, as, as you said, reoperation after tube surgery is not like reoperation after a trab. And perhaps clinicians would be more willing to accept a higher reoperation rate after trab surgery than they would after tube surgery anyway. Good point, Josh. It's a good point. And, and that needs to be considered kind of in interpreting the results of this study and, and making your uh, surgical decision making. I agree with you. So, so there's a higher reoperation rate in, a in the trabeculectomy group compared with the tube group. But a point that we brought up earlier and discussed earlier is, boy, a reoperation in, a, in an eye that's had a trabeculectomy may be easier. It may be an easier reoperation than uh, reoperating on somebody that's had uh, a tube shunt and has failed. Right. My point is, is that it's probably not fair to directly compare the reoperates for the two surgeries since they're really not apples and apples here. Right. I think your point is an excellent one. And I guess to kind of cut a little bit to the bottom line about, you know, what's the take-home message of this of the study here and I don't believe that the take-home message is that one operation is clearly superior to another. 
but it does give us a lot of information, again, to help guide us in surgical decision-making. Now, listen, if you have one shot in the, to, to take the person to the operating room and you're not able to reoperate on the patient, for whatever reason, perhaps their systemic health or perhaps their psyche is such that they're going to allow you to do one operation and they're not going to let you take them back to the operating room. Well, then the data from the TVT study would say a tube shunt is a better operation for that patient. How about a patient, I'm going to make one more point. How about a patient that is intolerant of all medications, okay? They can't tolerate any medical therapy, and that's part of the reason that you operated on them. Well, our study showed that actually a trabeculectomy had significantly lesser need for post-operative medical therapy. So in that patient, our data would suggest a trabeculectomy may be a better choice of an operation in that patient. So again, Josh, part of this is, is collecting information, trying to present it to the to readers and our colleagues in an organized fashion, and, can, and you can use that based on the particular patient that you're dealing with. And I think that was your point, and I think it's an excellent one that, you know, you're not comparing apples and oranges. And, and I would also suggest that the data that's here can be applied specifically to, to a patient that you're dealing with. But I think it, it's helpful in guiding some of the surgical decision-making when you're dealing with a similar uh, pa- patient population. Now, while we're on the same subject of how to apply these data, to, to what extent do you feel your results are applicable to other valve types? you have to be very careful in, in overgeneralizing the results of the study. And, and the point you're bringing out, Josh, is a good one. We used just one type of implant, namely the 350 Bearvelt implant in this study. There have been some retrospective studies that have compared different implant types, the Bearvelt to the Ahmed or the Bearvelt to the Maltino implant. And none of those studies really suggested any difference in outcomes between different implant types. However, they have all the biases of a retrospective study, and the point being is that you can't really generalize the results of the TVT study to other implant types. Moreover, it studied just one particular population of patients. Those patients had had prior cataract surgery, or a failed trabeculectomy. There was a long laundry list of types of patients that we excluded from this study. I alluded to some of those earlier, neovascular glaucoma, uveitic glaucoma, patients with a lot of conjunctival scarring. And you can't actually apply the results of this study to those patient groups that were not enrolled in the study. So you have to be somewhat careful in trying to overgeneralize the results of the study. Uh, on generalizing the results of this study. With any study like this, there's a trade-off between making the study controlled with very discrete variables and making the results generalizable. How do you interpret the findings of this study? How, How do you apply them to your practice? Now, it would be an easier question for me to ask you how... I should apply this to, to my practice, but I want to know what you do. Well, again, walking into this study, I didn't know among patients that had 
medically uncontrolled glaucoma that had had prior ocular surgery, namely cataract surgery or failed filtering surgery or a combination, a combined procedure. I didn't really know what was a better operation for that patient. Now I have some, some data, at least for uh, one year worth of follow-up data, to help guide me in that surgical decision-making. And, and for patients, um, again, we, I gave some examples. If I want to optimize my chances of, of having controlled pressure, not having to go back to the operating room, not having hypotony, actually a tube shunt is a better operation. I can expect that that patient that undergoes tube shunt surgery is probably going to need to be on a bit more medical therapy than if I chose an alternative surgical approach, namely a trabeculectomy. But I think there is some compelling evidence that you know, a, a tube shunt is certainly a very viable uh, surgical approach and may actually be a preferred approach for um, a, a significant proportion of those patients that are a, a similar patient group that was studied in the TVT study. And again, as we talked about at the beginning of this interview, that is contrast with the conventional wisdom, at least surveying members of the American Glaucoma Society and looking at their practice patterns and their preferred surgical approach. It doesn't say that, it doesn't tell me and, and my patients that tube shunt is always the best operation. And there are those patients, again, that can't take medical therapy. And I think actually a trabeculectomy is a better choice of an operation in those patients that uh, are really intolerant of medical therapy because my chances of achieving a complete success, namely controlled pressure without any medications, is actually greater, significantly greer in using a, a trabeculectomy with mitomycin C rather than a bare valve as a surgical approach. We, um, we've really centered our discussions about outcomes, surgical outcomes and success and failure. There's a whole other area that really needs to be considered, and that's complications. And coming, I think, in December in the American Journal of Ophthalmology, we'll be publishing our results. And we really divided the one-year results into two papers, um, one focusing on the topic we've talked about today, and that's efficacy or treatment outcomes. But the other is actually surgical complications. And I think the effectiveness or efficacy of a surgical procedure really needs to be interpreted in light of the surgical complications associated with, with each surgical procedure as well. Josh, we could talk for another hour about the surgical complications, or I could talk. I, I don't know if anybody would really want to listen to me, but um, we certainly collected lots of data about intraoperative and postoperative complications in this study. I guess the real nuts and bolts of it is, number one, we had a high rate of, of surgical complications in both treatment groups, but most of those complications were transient and self-limited ones like choroidal effusions and shallowing in the anterior chamber and, and things like that. And I think the collaborative initial glaucoma treatment study, another multi-center randomized clinical trial, actually um, reported a similar kind of high rate of transient complications in, in patients undergoing a primary trabeculectomy. There were actually more patients had postoperative complications in the trabeculectomy group, actually, than the tube group, and that was statistically significant. There was no difference 
in the number of patients that, that experienced intraoperative complications. But again, more patients in the trabeculectomy group had postoperative complications than the tube group. Now, most of those, again, were transient and self-limited. If we actually looked at what we defined as serious complications, and those were complications that required a trip back to the operating room to manage that complication, or, and or if it resulted in some vision loss, the rate of serious complications were similar between the two treatment groups. And also the rate of reoperation for complications was similar between the two treatment groups. So that's, I guess, a, really a, uh, an abbreviated uh, uh, comment on really the second paper, which addresses surgical complications with both procedures. But that certainly needs to be, any efficacy results really need to be interpreted in light of those, uh, in light of the surgical complications associated with, uh, with both procedures. Steve, thank you very much. Josh, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Steve Getty is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Residency Director at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. His paper, Treatment Outcomes in the Tube versus Trabeculectomy Study After One Year of Follow-Up, is in press in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Getty or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website, asseenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.